Hi, everybody. Welcome to the August 21st, 2020 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's get right to it. This week, the Democratic National Convention convened remotely due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. All speakers delivered their remarks without crowds, which certainly impacted the reception of their message. Without the usual boost from attendance and participation, it is unknown how the convention will affect races here in Colorado. Patty Calhoun for Westward, we'll start with you. Uh, usually, in a, in a pre-COVID convention, we probably would have seen some Colorado faces, some, uh, and they may have maybe not been in prime time, but at least on fringe, uh, and there would be a little bit more energy that you, isn't a deal-breaker, but does something to local races. I don't get the idea that that's as good, what's going to happen this year. What was your impression after this week's events? Well, I definitely missed the funny hats. I missed some of the fights, you know, with the delegates who didn't want to vote for the person they were supposed to vote for. We missed all that action. But I was most surprised by the lack of a lot of Colorado presence. We're kind of used to feeling like we're the center of the universe, even though we aren't. And we had two Democratic presidential candidates. I would have thought Hickenlooper at least would have had some airtime. They certainly had plenty of airtime. You could have filmed it remotely to push his candidacy. Michael Bennett could have used some time. But we didn't have much beyond the basic roll call, one health care provider. So I missed Colorado's presence there. I thought some of the speeches were incredibly good. Those of us who've been stuck doing anything on Zoom lately, it's not much fun. And I thought uh, Michelle Obama was fabulous. I thought uh, Joe Biden, just we, everyone was excited that he didn't fall over. And it was, if you listen to the words, there was some really, really masterful speech writing over the last four days. And of course, the 13-year-old stutterer who gave the most wonderful, heartfelt speech of all. So it was really, it was a good show. Uh, the, most of the tech worked. We're all sympathetic to that these days. You're here. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. It's great to see you. Uh, David, the, the local bump from a national convention is, can sometimes be negligible. I mean, it's a national show versus local races, but it could be exposure for some folks that might be able to be used down the road. Uh, is it a big loss for local Democrats to uh, see really little participation in this year's version? Well, and Hickenlooper and Bennett didn't even get to be on the uh, Biden victim list of all the people he defeated who showed up to, together. Um, I, I think it'll be about the same because even though the TV ratings were down, the uh, uh, online ratings went up, so probably, it probably evened out. Um, I'd say that you know, the difference between a national political convention versus a uh, public television fundraiser is much smaller uh, than it <laughs> used to be. You're here. In, in any convention where you're running against an incumbent president is going to be you're going to have a long list of all the current problems in the country, and this time there was a quite a long list, and a lot of it was true. But there was some things that were pretty conspicuous by their absence, and that is the fact that we're now on the 85th day of riots in, in Portland. Riots and vandals and looters have destroyed cities like Minneapolis, parts of New York. Uh, the murder rate is soaring uh, in big cities all over the country, uh, Denver, Aurora, and, and many others. And uh, yet there was nothing about that. Um, and as uh, Ted Trimper, the Colorado Democratic strategist, wrote, uh, Democrats need to find their spines and stand against destruction and vandalism. And as Joe Biden said last night, silence is complicity. And the complicity we saw uh, is going to induce a lot of people uh, who can't stand Donald Trump to vote for him anyway. Natasha Gardner, freelance journalist. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about momentum when it comes to election years. Uh, was there any significant momentum lost, whether it's just for, for Democrats in general because of the format or specifically what's going to impact Colorado? 
What's interesting is conventions made a lot of sense in a different world where news didn't travel as fast as it does in these days. And I wonder if, if people are going to look at the format both from this week and, and hopefully next week and wonder what things that we can incorporate in the long term to include more people in this political process, more voices, um, more more individual uh, states. I mean, the roll call itself was, was such a lively endeavor for people who've been stuck in their homes on their couches to have a tour of America, I think was a really fun thing. Um, from a Colorado perspective, and I think also for the country, even though they were speaking in, in mostly empty rooms, the stage was actually quite crowded. Biden talked about that in his speech, sort of the four crises that he sees the country facing right now. But in addition to that, the theme that sort of overrode his name throughout the convention was a message to vote. So yes, the message was vote for Biden, but the message in particular on every single day was about voting, whether that was Michelle Obama's very subtle necklace or her not so subtle instructions about what you might have to endure to be able to get your vote counted this year. And I think that's interesting that the DNC decided to focus so much on that particular message, because one of the things we talk a lot about on the show, and particularly in Colorado, is that unaffiliated voter or the person who may be undecided. The question this year is how many people are undecided decided in this presidential race. And what I think the DNC was trying to do was to take those people who maybe weren't inspired to vote to actually go and vote for a person they probably already have an opinion on. Whether they were successful or not in that endeavor, we'll see when when November comes around. But I think there's definitely a, a very good potential from the message they presented this week, and we'll see what the RNC adds to that debate. And we might see historic turnouts this year, despite all the other conversations and concerns that we have about ballots in this particular year. Penfield Tate, longtime state lawmaker and attorney at Tate Law. Uh, Penn, uh, we talked about momentum. We also talked about impact on local races. If you're one of the uh, Democratic uh, uh, candidates in Colorado this year, uh, is there a lot of missed opportunity? Or frankly, conventions are August. It doesn't have anything to do with October. We're just going to keep on rolling. What, what do you think the effect really is? You know, I, I think the effect this year will be there was a missed opportunity. To Patty's point about neither Hickenlooper nor Bennett getting any, any face time, um, and the fact that with the roll call the way they did it this year, you did get to survey and see a bunch of the states, and, and it's surprising that Colorado didn't play more prominently. Because of the contested races we have here, um, it is unfortunate that they didn't, frankly, give more airtime uh, to some of the, the Democratic candidates here. I think with the DNC, they may have figured that that Colorado is is safely Biden country, which is not always a safe assumption, and they just um, decided to focus on some other locations. One thing I wanted to amplify to to Natasha's point, um, I've been a delegate at two national conventions, and what's interesting is in the audience, you can tell the difference between polite applause and when a speaker really moves someone. I think it was difficult for Biden and all of the speakers this year to tell how their message was resonating because you didn't get that immediate feedback. And sometimes as a speaker, that immediate feedback energizes you and makes you even better. And that component was missing this year, and it's unfortunate. Denver's mayor may have been granted a temporary reprieve as two measures to weaken the authority of the office were referred to committee by the Denver City Council, ensuring that they will not be on this fall's ballot. Only one proposal will go to voters this fall, a measure that will ask voters if the council should be authorized to approve mayoral appointments. 
Councilman Candy Say DeBaca's proposal to replace the police force with a peacekeeping force failed 11 to 1. David, what did you make of how the Denver City Council handled the uh, various proposals this week? Uh, as you said, uh, it's a, a, a narrow escape for the mayor because by the time this, if it, uh, uh, the charter changes get adopted, it'll, it'll be, he'll be uh, finished with his term probably. You know, as Colorado statutes say, law enforcement officers are peace officers, and notwithstanding the cascade of vilification, the vast majority of them in Denver and elsewhere are peace officers. And that's why a recent Gallup poll found that 81% of black people want the same or increased police presence in their neighborhood. And the sentiments of other racial groups are uh, pretty similar. So the mayor's doing the right thing by working to have a good and excellent uh, police force. And uh, being politically astute, I think he recognizes that the, the far left can seem intimidating, but when you stand up to them, you win because the vast majority of people are on your side. Natasha, these issues aren't going to go away. It's not as if this is the last time Denver City Council is going to be debating things like this with mayoral appointments, uh, independent monitor positions, city attorney, things like that. Uh, but do you think this is a turning point in those conversations moving forward? Not turning point, but definitely a new chapter. As someone who has sat through a fair number of these meetings myself, I think something that I've often had to explain to people is actually how little business or sort of discussion happens in that broader meeting, that so much of the work actually happens behind the scenes and in particular in those committees. So what's surprising about the strategy that was used here was bringing that sort of initial early conversations to the broader group. And of course, two of those get shot back down to committee and that's where the discussion is going to be had. What's interesting to me is that strategy isn't used more often. And I think part of the reason for it is it's chaotic. It, it forces council members to go on the record with a vote that they sort of have to immediately explain whether it was a vote just to move it to committee or whether it was a vote against the concept as a whole. So I think um, it's worth uh, some reporting right now in, in our community to sort of look at the, the strategy itself and what, what impact it has. Because here we are this week talking about three things that are virtually going nowhere as of right now that are still headlining the news that we're still using as a discussion topic. So if anything, I think all three of these topics may continue in various ways. But I also think the strategy of sort of coming to the larger council meeting with big topics like this to have more visibility for them before they've gone through committee review may not be as uncommon as it was in this sort of um, big reveal this week. Penn, as a former mayoral candidate, I'm very interested in what you think about these proposals and if you think, uh, where do you think the conversation goes from here? You know, Dominic, I think all of the, the proposals were worthy of, of being raised and conversation. Um, and I understand David's point. Yeah, people of color want to feel safe in their communities. They want active and effective law enforcement and policing. But what they're tired of is people of color getting victimized and brutalized by the same uh, law enforcement uh, presence. Uh, Denver um, has had a recent spate of settlements due to excessive use of force um, with people being killed or seriously injured by the police. There was a journalist who was assaulted just for taping an altercation between the police and, and a homeless person. So these proposals will continue to move forward. You know, it's interesting to watch this because legislatively, committee is where you, you don't really do the work. It's in the legislature, it's where bills die. 
on the floor during second reading is where a lot of the compromises get made and where the final legislation is crafted because you've got the entire body there working and talking and, and, and working through some of these tough issues in full public view. And, and so I think city council may have to take uh, another look at uh, relegating so many of these things to committee when really they're important issues and people in the city want to see how the entire council addresses and resolves these problems. Because as Natasha said, they're still on the forefront of our consciousness and in our conversation, these issues are not going to go away. Patty, the Denver City Council has uh, been a little bit more dramatic in 2020 than in years past, but it's always been a source of uh, a contention for issues like this. Do you see uh, more of this kind of contention moving forward? Is this a, a point in the road that tells us what's going to happen in the next few months? Well, these are contentious times. So I think we will, as the police that are looking at a raise in 2022, certainly the discussion of the police force or the peacekeeping force is going to come back. It is too bad that two proposals are now going back to committee. I think both of them might have had a shot. One is the independent monitor, who is technically under the mayor, is appointed by the mayor, would have gone to a vote of council. Now, the independent monitor is Nick Mitchell. He doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Everyone likes him. He seems to be doing a pretty good job. So there wasn't a lot of impetus to move it now. The other issue would have been the city attorney with um, an approval vote by city council. That didn't make it either. We've got another big one coming up, which is the group home issue. And you talk about how long these things take to work out. It's been two years in the making, a zoning code change that just passed the planning board will go to council to allow more than two unrelated adults to live in a home, which, hello, 1950s, and, um, and, but also to allow more group homes in different areas of Denver. That is going to be a contentious discussion. Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser announced his intention to join a multi-state lawsuit against the U.S. Postal Service to ensure that the agency isn't weakened in advance of the November election. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy later said he would pause operational changes until after the election, but uh, National Congress Speaker Nancy Pelosi countered that he had told her that they, he would not restore any mailboxes or sorting equipment and had no plans for employee overtime. Uh, Natasha, we start with you on this one. Colorado, with its mail-in ballot, uh, frankly, success, mail-in voting success, is going to be seemingly in the middle of this conversation for a long time. Uh, do you think its stature, our stature as a state will grow in this conversation since it doesn't seem the debate is going anywhere? Uh, going. Absolutely. It's grown since uh, pretty much every day that this conversation continues. And by the way, I love topics like this because it gives me a great excuse to delve into history and go on a little bit of a research project. Because immediately as these conversations are happening, I keep on wondering how many postmaster general names do I know um, from the past? And of course, the most famous one is Benjamin Franklin, and that predates the Constitution. That's how important the United States Postal Service is to the formation of this country, but also the continuation of the country. I think all the conversation and particularly in Colorado, because our system relies on mail-in ballots. And of course, you can do drop-off centers and, and things like this. But it's really based on the sense that this is going to come to your home and you can send it back. Um, this is vital 
to, to our democracy. But in addition, we're also finding, as, as people are reporting on this more, how vital it is to every part of our day-to-day life. And we should have known that all along, but we're being reminded of that, whether that's um, these awful stories of chickens, live chicken, baby chicks that are being delivered in the mail that aren't making it in time, or people who aren't getting their medications in time. You know, and on a more trivial level, it's the, the fun magazines that I get, you know, with cooking recipes in them, or the coupons that help sustain local businesses. You know, least we forget, the United States Postal Service has an important role in our day-to-day lives. It has an important role in our democracy because of the way of our election is set up as well. So any efforts that we can make to, to help that um, and to ensure that it, it can run efficiently is important. So I think um, the Attorney General um, was right to do what he did and to pursue that. And I think the continued conversations need to happen to make sure that it's on track for where we need it to be in November, but every day. Penn, what do you think was the overall, uh, I guess, impact of the lawsuits? Is that what brought the change or was it something else? Well, I think the impact helped spur the change, but the impact sort of brought the issue to a head. Uh, One thing uh, that I think we need to do is we need to give props to both Attorney General Phil Weiser and continue to, to congratulate our Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold, who has really been a national figure advocating for the broader use of mail-in voting because it's been implemented so effectively in Colorado over the years. You know, when you look at the history of the Postal Service, and and Natasha referenced it, uh, the founders established it as a way to ensure the exchange of free ideas and opinions without repression by the Crown or central government And now you have someone in Donald Trump who is intentionally targeting the Postal Service in an effort to bolster his attempt at re-election. That is disturbing, at least. And you've got a postmaster general who's going to be complicit in that. So what Attorney General Weiser and the other attorney generals are doing is absolutely correct. They've got to fight back and uphold this constitutional prerogative. Patty, is Colorado going to find itself in the middle of these headlines between now and really the end of the election? Well, we should be held up as a poster child for how it's worked. And let's also give kudos to Wayne Williams, the previous uh, secretary, who managed to really put in the mail bo- uh, mail-in voting. We've had so little problems in Colorado, and certainly we've been scrutinized. You know, when Trump first ran and was talking about how rigged Colorado voting was, we've had so little problems that if the rest of the country could follow our system pretty quickly, we would be assured of a fairly good election in November. As it is, we want to have as many people as possible have access to voting. And whatever it's going to take to protect the right to vote, we're going to have to follow. David, with with the billions lost by the U.S. Postal Service, I think the fact that it needs some reform is clear. But can that happen eventually after the election? Well, Patty has said Colorado is a model for successful mail-in voting. That was a system that was built over many years, and trying to adapt it quickly hasn't been working very well in other places. The New York primary was a complete fiasco. Minnesota's had disasters with it, uh, and so we'll probably have the same nationwide with states that, that try to move too quickly. So let's look at what the claims are in this lawsuit. If, the, if you pay for first-class mail, that post office gives that mail priority over bulk rate or marketing mail. So some states, when they send out their ballots, don't pay for first-class mail. They send it out at at bulk rate. And in the past, the post office has 
nevertheless treated it like first class. And that's, that's not really fair. The, the, it's the responsibility of the county clerks or the secretaries of state to pay first class prices for first class service. So that change is entirely reasonable. But the problem is, as the lawsuit says, the Trump administration may not have gone through the proper administrative procedures uh, in making the change. And that certainly wouldn't be the first time they did something that was legal, uh, but it got nixed because of the wrong procedures. Let's get a quick take on this last one. Colorado students returned to the classroom this week. Though that classroom might be a computer, many schools are opting for hybrid models as COVID-19 outbreaks continue, even as infection rates do decline. Uh, Penn, we're going to start with you on this one. Uh, we know it's different for school districts around the, around the state, but as the school year begins, I guess, are you hopeful with what we're seeing across Colorado? You know, Dominic, I am hopeful. I think many of these districts made the right decision. Starting remotely is the way to proceed. And as the pandemic begins to hopefully abate, but more importantly, if we get some sort of vaccine, then do more in-classroom learning. What this does highlight, though, is we still have not um, dealt with the digital divide between the haves and the have-nots economically in our society. And it further impacts kids who are on the margin and and limits their ability to get an effective and quality education. Patty, uh, we're seeing, as usual in Colorado, local control handling things in each school district. So far, so good? Well, Denver Public Schools, for example, this week was talking about how they don't have enough computers and they're remote until October, early October for those kids at least. So just good luck to all people who've got kids at home who are going to have to figure out how to make this work, and good luck to all the teachers and educators. Dave, is the, so far is local control uh, working for the situation? Well, what we do is, is true local control, which is the family. There's no one method that works for everyone. Some kids thrive uh, with online learning, and others really need in, in-person instruction. So if a school district can't or, or won't provide what particular students need, then the district should give the per-pupil funding to the family so they can pay for education uh, that does work for the student, such as uh, hiring tutor uh, for students with disabilities. Natasha, wrap it up for us. Uh, you're mother of a second grader, so uh, you, you have a, a very particular perspective on this. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on figuring out school, but I also realized last night that I needed to make a lunch menu. So I did that as well. You know, this is such a difficult time for so many people. One thing I saw, and I rarely do this, but I saw it on Facebook and I just have to pass it along, which was, was um, a friend of public television, um, Mr. Rogers did all of his teaching virtually. So as I hear people frustrated, and, and I understand that, I also think there may be an opportunity here for innovation. And um, so if anything, you know, that that moment of, of message gave me a little bit of hope. So hopefully it can give some other people some inspiration. Maybe we can channel some Mr. Rogers and find some positive threats in this unique environment we're all uh, um, in right now. You can never go wrong when uh, you're uh, channeling Mr. Rogers. Well, well done, Natasha. Time for a very, very part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Next week, we all wear cardigans like Mr. Rogers. <laughs> uh, a former person at this table, Tom Tancredo, got involved on the advisory committee of Build the Wall, this group that just wound up with four people indicted, including Steve Bannon and a Castle Rock man, Timothy Shea, because they took some of the money, a lot of the money that went to this private thing to build the wall, private campaign, and it's going to be quite the trial. I will say Tom Tancredo said he's gotten none of the money. (laughs) David. For over 2,000 episodes, this program 
has played Fish's song Chalk Dust Torture as the concluding music, and yet never once have any of the lyrics been shared with the viewers. So here are some. Confuse what you can of the ending, and revise your despise so impending, because I soak on the wrath that you didn't quite mask. But who can unlearn all the facts that I've learned as I sat in their chairs and my synapses burned? And watch what I say as it flutters away, and all this emotion is kept hidden at bay, not to educate somebody's fright. Natasha. Well, so many um, news headlines of, of destruction going around the globe right now with wildfires. But in addition to that, I was so upset to learn about the fish kill in Sloan's Lake this week. Um, just devastating photos um, coming out of Denver. Ben. Uh, I, I share mine with Patty, the, the build the wall scandal of a group of Trump uh, cronies again, uh, fleecing uh, his supporters, ironically. But the bigger disgrace is going to be when Trump pardons Bannon. Time to say something nice about somebody. Patty? We're coming on that one-year anniversary of the death of Elijah McClain. So my heart goes out to his family. They've called off their participation in that walk for Elijah, which is taking place on Sunday. Maybe it's taking place. We hope that everyone who wants to demonstrate their feelings observes what the family wants, and they want their son to be remembered in a quiet way, the way he would have wanted, a peaceful way. David. In a time when so many politicians, including the president, are so self-centered and narcissistic, this wonderful and inspiring biography of John Quincy Adams, uh, a, a true patriot who always put his country first, he was the only president who, after being president, later served in the U.S. House of Representatives. And there he became the nation's leading anti-slavery advocate, which, of course, led to efforts to try to censor him. And the uh, final achievement of his very illustrious career was repeal of the gag rule in the House, which had been used to shut down discussion of slavery. Natasha. All the people who are working so hard right now to put out the fires that are burning across the state and also the news that Hanging Lake was untouched. Um, certainly so much damage in that area, but I, I my, no, my heart was lifted to see those images of the lake. Uh, the Hanging Lake miracle. I'm with you on that one. Penn, go to, going to you. Um, kudos to all the teachers around uh, the, sit, the state and the country who are boning up on their own political skills and preparing to do their jobs and try to educate their students as best they can remotely. And I want to get in and say something nice, that tomorrow is the annual anniversary of my wife's 29th birthday. So happy birthday, Paula. And of course, I want to say something nice uh, about all of our viewers. It's great to always hear from you. Uh, uh, whether you like what you see or not, it's important to me that uh, folks are reaching out and we do not take the opportunity that we have to share with you every week for granted. Thank you for that. And thank you for all the folks who are joining us in the middle of our August pledge drive. We are right in the middle of it, as uh, you probably know if you've been tuning in during prime time. If you enjoy this show or other programs on PBS 12, it's your support that makes it happen. Uh, we do not take that for granted. We are grateful for that. And we appreciate being able to use those funds to uh, bring you a lot of different programs from all over the world and all over our community. So thank you for making that happen. For everybody here at PBS 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night.